The Charles Adler Show starts now. Conservative author slash writer slash newspaper columnist slash talk show host, and most important, these days, substacker, Tasha Carradine in Toronto. Welcome to The Charles Adler Show. Thank you, Charles. Pleasure to be here. So, Tasha, you're writing like a number of people are about anti-Semitism, but it goes deeper than the old subject of of Jew hatred. Uh, This is very much... Uh, something that is a political weapon being used by Russia, China, Iran, and others. Uh, What does Tasha Kerr know that many of us don't right now? Well, I want to see the big picture on what was happening between Israel and Hamas. Nothing happens in isolation. And when you dig a little deeper and you look at what's been happening with regard to the language, um, using things like, you know, the anti-colonial narrative, anti-imperialism, and as you mentioned, also anti-Semitism as essentially weapons in the court of public opinion. Um, What I found was that, and I'd heard this before, that um, the anti-colonial narrative in particular is something that has been long used um, by the actors you mentioned, Russia, China, and to an extent Iran as well, to advance their interests to the detriment of the United States and other countries in the West that they accuse of being colonial powers or imperialist powers. The irony, of course, being that Russia uh, and the former Soviet Union were quite imperialist and China is as well. But that's not the narrative they spin. And it's been deployed very effectively, I think, unfortunately, to garner sympathy, but also, I think, create a sort of ignorance in the sense of history, especially of the Jewish people and what they've gone through and why Israel exists in the first place. So I think it partly explains why we're at the place we are now, the demonstrations we see and the language that we, that is being used. Now, if we're just talking about uh, history in the most objective way possible, um, is it possible that Iranian Muslims and Arabian Muslims, um, Iranians are not Arabians, Iranians are generally Persians, but is it possible both, both, both Persian Muslims and Arabian Muslims have been rather imperialistic for the last couple of hundred years? Well, yes. I mean, this is the irony here is all these nations have had their own designs. Um, Iran, for example, has has long sought um, the uh, the destruction of Israel through other means, and one of the means is supporting Hamas. We know they've given um, hundreds of millions of dollars over the the last uh, couple of decades to the Palestinian cause, but mostly, chiefly through the Hamas leadership in Gaza. Um, this hasn't improved the lives of the Palestinians, mind you. And um, we know that there's been, uh, you know, a, a growing sense of, um, of frustration, I think, uh, in the West um, among some quarters watching this saying, maybe we've been, we've been too easy in the sense of ignoring the fact that these three actors are actually using Israel as a proxy for their fight against the U.S. This is really what I was getting at earlier was that this is not about Israel and Hamas in isolation. It is a proxy fight against the West. It's a second front that's opened up in addition to Ukraine, and it's designed essentially to weaken um, America, weaken the West through engaging them in this in this confrontation and diverting their attention, in this case also from Ukraine. So it's, you know, the old divide and conquer technique, and Iran is definitely part of that. So if you're, if you're China, if you're Russia, and if you're Iran, putting aside that uh, there is you know, a lot of hypocrisy going on here for any of them to be criticizing anyone for being colonialist, but putting putting that aside, um, is there anything easier for them than using students and students' unions and students' associations at various college campuses all over the world uh, in their effort to attack the United States? 
No, and this is the thing that um, young people have been influenced and now mobilized through a longstanding disinformation campaign and uh, under the guise of education. Um, China, for example, started Confucius Institutes. They even have Confucius classrooms for, for junior students, but Confucius Institutes in universities to present their point of view. It's the kind of, you know, it's it's going to war without actually going to war, which is what the art of war teaches you to do. Sun Tzu is very clear. If you can defeat your opponent without an actual battle, you really win because you don't you don't expend as much effort. So using soft power, these kinds of techniques, uh, whether it's elite capture or starting simply these institutes where China's point of view is articulated in a positive light, has influenced students in that regard. And China's been promoting the anti-colonial narrative since the 1950s. They actually, Mao Zedong identified it as a means of undermining the West. Um, the world was going through a lot of decolonization in Africa and other places um, in the 1950s and 60s, but it was a long-term vision that this could actually be used against North America, against European countries on their own soil, as opposed to simply countries that want to throw off the colonial mantle. And they, they saw that as far back as, as 1959. Um, in fact, Mao Zedong commented on it. So uh, it is, you know, that was done on that front. Um, the um, Arab countries you mentioned earlier, or Arabian countries with large, Qatar among them, have long funded programs at universities, um, clubs of, you know, the, the pro-Palestinian side of things. Um, there's also been a lot of media that's been made, films and other things. You know, when you think back to the days when the Holocaust really was very much front and center in popular culture, films like Schindler's List and, um, you know, Sophie's Choice and other things brought it home on an emotional level to people. We're seeing funding of projects on the other side of that that have done the same thing in terms of Palestinian cause that have captured hearts and minds. And a lot of money's been thrown at this. And the last piece I'll just say is Russia's excellent disinformation. They've been using it throughout U.S. election cycles to disrupt, basically, not necessarily even present a single point of view, but simply to cause chaos within American society. And they continue to do so. And we're seeing that with regard to disinformation about this war as well. Tasha, can you explain to me why boomers and Xers are putting all of this stuff out there about this anti-Semitism and this colonial narrative being new? I mean, I naturally was going to uh, university for, you know, the, the university where I spent uh, most of my uh, academic years post-secondary uh, would have been McGill in Montreal. And it was rife with Marxist, Leninists, Maoists, Trotskyites, others on the on the far left, uh, all of them were pushing the same thing. Uh, so uh, I'm talking about a campus with primarily boomers and Xers uh, who experienced all of this. And now I see, you know, some of my my, my peers uh, writing about this as if it's something new. And I'm, I'm wondering, have they got amnesia? Well, it's not they have amnesia. It's that um, I think the critical mass wasn't there. I, I agree it was present, but there was also countervailing forces. And academia had not been... Um, I guess to a word captured or influenced to that degree. Um, I think there was more balance. I think today what you're seeing is you're seeing the outgrowth of that because the people who succeeded in academia and have, are there now are the are the boomers and Xers, mostly I guess the Xers who have gone through the system and stayed in academia and now are influencing the next generation. So when you see students at McGill, for example, in Montreal, I mean McGill University, voting overwhelmingly in a student election um, in which I think a third of them participated. So it wasn't, you know, it was 8,000 students who actually voted. Uh, it's not nothing. Um, and when you see that two thirds of them say that McGill uh, should adopt a pro-Palestinian line, a very hardcore one, 
Well, you know, that's telling you something that's telling you that there's been um, an increase in that conversation. And I think that's partly, like I said, it's been amplified by other actors. It's amplified in places like TikTok as well, where this generation gets their info. So while it was present before, it was, there was, there were enough countervailing voices to have a balance. Today, it's really dominant. And that's why you're seeing this one-sided conversation. Does Gen Z know that there was a Holocaust? Hmm. Well, interesting. Studies have been shown in the U.S. that show actually majority do not. One in 10, um, six in 10 don't really know about it. One in 10 think the Jews caused it. That's pretty frightening. So it's not just lack of information, it's disinformation. And uh, like I said earlier, I think part of this is because it's not, I mean, there's Holocaust education and we're beefing that up in Canada, which I think is a good thing to teach generations, but there's a lack of it in popular culture. The popular culture and sympathy has veered away from telling the stories of people like Anne Frank um, or Schindler or others who, uh, you know, made a difference at that time. We don't have, you know, Hogan's Heroes was on the TV when I was a kid in reruns. I'll emphasize that. But still, you know, just the, con the consciousness of the war itself, these children or these kids, it's been 75 years. They, they don't know. I mean, when, when I was young, no one talked about the Boer War, which was 75 years before. Um, so it, it, it fades. Memory fades unless you remind people. And that's what has to be done. But it has to be done in the places where Gen Z gets their information. And that is online. That is on these platforms. And I mean, TikTok is owned by ByteDance. People always thought, oh, this is going to be a, a Chinese data farm for the government there to scrape data. Uh-uh. It's an information portal, or rather a disinformation portal. They have a direct conduit into the phones of millions and millions of Gen Z kids who watch TikTok night and day. They can tell them whatever they want, and they will accept it. Now, more with Charles Adler. Does it surprise you, as someone who has studied the left for many, many years, or I can use the word progressive for those people who aren't comfortable with, with, with left, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, whether we're talking about feminist advocates, uh, whether we're talking about advocates uh, in the LGBTQ community, uh, does it surprise you, Tasha, that these progressives seem to be uh, supporting or at least uh, apologizing for and rationalizing Hamas? Uh, there may not be a less progressive. Uh, ecosystem in the world uh, that, that than Gaza. I mean, the, you you can't be you can't be openly gay. You certainly can't be a feminist. And if you're a woman, you certainly can't expect to have uh, very much status in Gaza. I'm not saying it's as bad as Afghanistan, but it's almost as bad. Where do these progressives get off on supporting Hamas? Well, this is where you see the interplay of the concept of intersectionality, another academic view that says all oppressed groups have to ally themselves, whether they're LGBTQ, um, women, uh, women feminists, um, disabled people, uh, racialized people, that they all have a common grievance, which is oppression by uh, the white, able-bodied male majority. That is, that is sort of an intersectional view of how these groups should fight when they have a cause. You overlay that with now the neo-colonial or anti-colonial piece. And what you end up with is, like you said, the strangest of bedfellows because feminists should be completely decrying what happened October 7th. I mean, the concept of, you know, believe her, right, from Me Too, where's that gone? It's disappeared under this layer of oppressor versus oppressed. That's now the dominant narrative or glue that these groups will go to. So 
you're right, LGBTQ um, people, there was a banner held up that you know, Palestine, uh, trans people won't be free until Palestine is free. I mean, are you kidding me? You go to Palestine and be trans, you'll probably be thrown off a roof. It's, I mean, I hate to say that, I, I, you know, but my trans friends tell me this too. Like, it's like they, they are horrified by this conflation, but it is, it is there because that is the dominant paradigm now. And so that's where you get this. Um, Jewish people have been, I say, um, created now or, or labeled almost what you say, privileged or white adjacent because they are seen as colonizers. That's the word. Uh, forgetting, of course, that the reason Israel exists is because they were themselves removed from land that they had lived in thousands of years ago and that they continued to live in, you know, in, in 19, uh, the 1940s. Um, they were they were already present in what was Palestine, the British territory. There were Jews there all the time. They just, you know, it wasn't a state of any kind. And it was envisaged that there would be a two-state solution. We never got to that point. And that is the problem because there's been attempts to thwart that outcome, uh, mostly on the Palestinian side by leadership that had its own vision of what this should be, you know, from the river to the sea. If you accept that premise, then you're never going to have two states. You only have one Palestinian state. That was never the idea. So kids don't know this history. They don't know the backstory. And these groups certainly don't promote it. That at all. It's not in their interest. Well, you'd be hard put to find uh, human rights, uh, women's rights, uh, uh, union rights, uh, gay rights in, in, in the West Bank uh, or, or in Gaza. There is a place where uh, Palestinians have those rights. It happens Here. to be in Israel where, where you have well, two, yes, two million... Two million Palestinians. I, I can't honestly. I can't can't think of anywhere else in the Middle East where Palestinians have the opportunity uh, to do anything they want to do with their lives uh, outside of Israel itself. Well, there are Arab Israelis, as you pointed out. Not everyone in Israel is Jewish who lives there, um, and there are two million Arab Israelis, and they work alongside Jewish people. They're in the Knesset. They're uh, justice of the Supreme Court. They're you know they they uh, they're present in daily life, and I guess the. What, what people don't ask themselves also is why is life in Gaza so awful? Um, yeah, sure, there there are rest serious restrictions in terms of working uh, in Israel, but the Hamas leadership in Gaza has received millions of dollars from, in particular, the Qatari government over the years, and they have not used it for the benefit of their people. You know, there's a reason that the that the Egyptians also that 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 border is heavily patrolled and it was basically shut down during this conflict. Neighboring states are very leery of Hamas. It's not about the Palestinians. Hamas, the leadership that they have elected, truly, um, several times now, but they have their own terrorist ambitions. And that is the problem. And this is why when you see um, students blindly chanting from the river to the sea, what they don't realize is that they're not making that distinction. They're not saying, you know, um, out with Hamas, we want the Palestinians to achieve economic independence or, or a better life. They're just the whole kettle is one thing. It's like, oh, Israel's bad. Well, that is that is a not true, and b it's not going to it's not going to advance your cause. It's a stalemate to say that. Do, do they understand what they're chanting? Do they understand uh, what the uh, Palestinian chant of river to sea? Do do these students and and these professors, for that matter, do they understand what the slogan is about? Um, you know, I could I don't want to generalize, but I have seen video of of people, you know journalists asking them that very question and some of the answers coming back are almost humorous. It's like, oh, it's a nice slogan. It's pretty um, bad on the streets of New York City, for example, like people who have no clue at all what this is. Um, and then some, I think, that just have the sense that they may not fully understand 
and again, I'm not, I'm not blaming. I think it's the problem is because it's really hard with all the disinformation and everything else that they've been absorbing for so long to make that distinction and say, yeah, what it actually means is wipe Israel off the map. Cause you go the river, the sea, like Jordan river sea, like there's, that's the whole, that's Israel right there. So, uh, yeah, they, I don't, I would like to think they don't know because if they, what they, if they, if that's what they do know, they're essentially, they're calling for the genocide or the cleansing of the Jewish people, which is what they, you know, decry on the Palestinian side. So, you know, they're, they're being just as prejudiced as people they, they are fighting against. But Tasha, are we being, um, uh, a little bit uh, overly benign here, not when it comes to uh, young students, but when it comes to uh, professors, some of them old professors, mm-hmm. how can a professor who's 50 or 60 years old in any North American setting not know what from river to sea means? And how can they not know it's a ge- it's a genocidal slogan? It means from the Jordan River uh, to the Mediterranean Sea, there will be no Jews in that territory. That's what river to sea means. Well, I hate to say this. Um, either they, you know, are that they have no excuse. They are ignorant or they're anti-Semitic. Um, and this is what we're seeing also the second layer here that's being peeled back is people feel they have a license to hate Jewish people and hate Jews and say it and and that that is OK. And that is that is abhorrent. I mean, to anyone who knows anything about the Holocaust or the history of the region and, and the Jews, um, you know, it is. It is a trope that has come and gone throughout history. Um, it is based very often on envy. It is based on a sense of the other. Uh, it is prejudice, like, you know, out and out. And that we condone or accept it or that anyone does, uh, you know, reverse this and say, if you were saying that about any other group, would that be acceptable? No. Why is it acceptable here? Um, because they happen to have a state? Well, they didn't for, you know, thousands of years. Isn't that what you want for people to have their own state? Isn't that the goal of the anti-colonization movement to say you should have a country to call your own? Well, the irony is, is there's, it's ridiculous when you look at it, but it's not funny, but I'm just laughing because you're right. A 50 year old, you would think, or anyone of that generation should understand that. Yeah. I, I think to, to say that a 50 year old professor is naive <laughs> is, is, as I say, a little bit overly uh, benign. Uh, look, lastly, uh, Tasha, I just want to ask you about uh, impact here. Uh, if all of this anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism is all about uh, powers like China, Russia, Iran, and others uh, trying to create a wedge against the United States, is there any evidence that they have harmed, that they have damaged the United States throughout this? Oh, sure. I think just it's what what you're seeing is the division within the U.S. Um, very divided, starkly along political lines. You see Democrats and Republicans having very different views on this on this conflict and what should be done. You also, I think, just it it, it makes people angry and it foments the kind of of anger that is really bad for social cohesion. And that's really the goal here. The goal and China's goal has always been this. It's not so much to um, it's not to cause any kind of armed conflict. It's just to make your enemy. So turn on itself. That's the real success. And and for young people, particularly and for the for you see the since the Vietnam War, which by the way, at the time, advice was given to Yasser Arafat, hey, look, look what happened in Vietnam. We turned the tide on that by making people in the US hate themselves, right? This is what it comes. If you hate yourself as a country, then you're not gonna fight for that country. And it's gonna tear itself apart. You can just stand there and watch. That is what we're seeing. And I do feel that in the last month, those rifts have grown larger and it is, it's, you know, it's dangerous for, 
for anyone who believes in the things the U.S. does stand for, which is freedom and, and liberty. And the U.S. isn't a perfect country. Don't get me wrong. They interfere in other people's politics all the time. But would you rather choose a country where you are free to, to express your opinion or one where you would be sent to a gulag or an internment camp like in China? No Ta thanks. Tasha, we're grateful that Canadians have an opportunity and people around the world to uh, to read your, your books, uh, to read your columns in the National Post. And of course, you're new and successful. Nobody is surprised about that. Substack. Tasha Carradine in Toronto, thank you very much for this. Thank you, Charles. Tasha Carradine is in Toronto, and you are on whichever platform you choose to be, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or any of the others. Thanks for being where you are, and thank you for passing on the word to your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues and everyone else involved in your ecosystem. Thank you for joining us. I'm Charles Adler. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press, and every day at criermedia.co.